This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Gordon Zhu. Gordon, do you want to say hi? Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Now, we had you on episode 260. We were talking about Practical JavaScript, which, if I remember right, is the name of your uh, series? It's the kind of introductory course. So everyone that comes into watching code, that's like their first experience that gets them up to speed with with everything, with programming and also with what I'm doing in uh, the program at watching code. Awesome. Now, um, we haven't had you on for a while. It's been almost a year, I think. Um, do you want to just give people an overview of watching code and then we'll get into our regular interview questions? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Gordon Zhu and I'm the founder of Watching Code. And the mission of the company is to take total beginners and to turn them into amazing developers. And I want to take a second to deconstruct that because it's a little bit different than what a lot of people expect. There are a lot of companies that are have a very specific objective, which is to get you job ready or to teach you specific technology. My goal is a lot more simple. It's just to help people get continuously better in a way that's language and technology agnostic. So example, so for example, along the way you might get a job, but that's not the ultimate objective because even after you get a job, you still need to improve and that's always like a continuous process. So that's what I, I focus on. Nice. And it's interesting that we talk about this. Uh, I just barely finished interviewing uh, Quincy Larson for the show from free code camp. And so it's, it's, there, there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of stuff around this as far as leveling people up. And, you know, the focus is always a little bit different and the methods are a little bit different. But there are a lot of people coming in and, and you all offer something that, you know, may work better for one person than another. So, yeah, it's awesome that like the work that Quincy's doing and with teaching something as difficult as programming, there are just so many ways to do it. And I think all of us kind of learn from each other and see the different approaches. And there's a lot for instructors to learn from each other too, which is awesome. And, and also students get a lot of choice, which is really great too. Yep, absolutely. So let's dig into your story. Let's, let's find out where Gordon comes from. Um, where or how did you get into programming? Sure, yeah. So... I think the way I got into programming is pretty different than most people because it was the approach was very much try to avoid programming. And <laughs> the mindset I had was that it was a necessary, almost like a necessary evil that I had to kind of get through. I had studied business in college and I thought of myself as like a business liberal arts kind of person. But at the same time, I really got interested in the internet. So I was in college from 2006 to 2010 and things like Twitter were getting really popular. Um, I think maybe, maybe it was a little bit early before Airbnb, but 
startup culture was just starting to take hold and that, that got me really, really excited. And so, and I guess the other thing is I also was in college during the financial crisis and I initially wanted to do finance and, but the, the recession made me wonder if that was a reasonable thing to do. And so I started to look to technology for practical reasons as well. But I ended up working at a tech startup called Peak and they made this small texting device and I kind of got a sense of what it was like to work at a, a tech company, which I never experienced before. And that really got me really excited about programming. And like I said, I, I, I wasn't in a technical role there. I was basically the intern random business stuff kind of deal. But I started to feel almost uh, irresponsible, almost like a negligence that I worked at a tech company but didn't know anything about technology. And that's when I started to kind of shift my perspective from a stereotypical business school student to someone that was more open-minded about technology. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I didn't really take it seriously back then. So I tried to buy like a couple books, looked at one or two of them, and then pretty much gave up quite quickly, maybe within a month or two. And that was my introduction to programming. <laughs> That's interesting. It's, it's funny. I mean, I talked a little bit with Quincy after the show and, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to bring this up here. You know, we talked a little bit about the fact that a lot of people think that you have to encounter programming as like a, a two year old and, you know, I, well, I, I was programming basic and, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, I would go between that and drooling on my shirt and, you know, and then, and then, you know, just growing up, you know, I always did computers. And so I, that's why I'm in computers. And, you know, your story is, you know, when I was looking at finances and I was interning at a company and it was a technology company. And so I decided that I ought to learn technology and that's how you get in. You know, it, you, you weren't this child prodigy that people think they have to be. Um, I don't even know if you have a computer science degree. It was, I just, don't, yeah. you know, it was just, well, this is interesting or I feel like this is something I should learn. And then it turned into something that, you know, albeit going through a little bit of frustration, something that you found that you like to do. Right. And the point you bring up is really good because it's a really timely opportunity to talk about this because I almost think about it as two eras. You had the previous era that, and that generation of programmers was very much like you described, mostly dudes that were into computer games and then naturally did computer science and then mm -hmm. got an engineering job. And that was the norm maybe five, 10 years ago, but now today that's not the norm anymore. And it doesn't really reflect the common experience that people are having today because you have so many people coming into the industry as a second career or, or maybe even as a late first career, like they're a junior in college and then like, crap, I, this is actually cool. And then they didn't do a computer science degree, but they're doing a boot camp or they're self-teaching and getting into it that way. And yeah. so part of why I was really wanted to talk about this to just show people that there's another way and there are a lot of people doing doing it the, in a way that um, hasn't been traditional, but it's becoming more normal and a lot more approachable and a lot easier to do it too. Yeah, I think, I think the other aspect of this, I watched a talk by uh, Uncle Bob Martin and he, he said that the number of programmers essentially double, doubles every five years. So half or more of the developers at any given time are beginners. And you also have to think of where we're sourcing these people from. I mean, you know, 
computer science was a tiny, tiny uh, career choice back in the 60s and 70s. You know, the 80s, you know, became a little bit more 90s, much more, you know, the 2000s, you know, the, the web was kind of in full swing and we've needed developers uh, to come in in much, much larger numbers. There's a huge demand now. And we're going to be pulling them from places that are a little bit more unconventional. And so, yeah, I, I definitely see that. And that's kind of what I'm trying to highlight here is, you know, you, you can be somebody like Gordon and just be like, you know what, this is something that I ought to learn. This is something that I'm interested in learning. Oh, gee, I really like this. Come aboard and join the, <laughs> join the party. Yeah. And the other thing that's really cool and I, I've, I've loved seeing is that culture and popular culture is starting to reflect a new way of thinking about technology. So I've been watching Black Mirror recently and you, it gets me excited about technology and I'm already into mm -hmm. tech, but I imagine someone that's watching um, something like Black Mirror today and, and is thinking about whether they want to do computer science or any technology related role, it really helps to see what the future might be like and how important it might be to, to have that skill set going forward. Um, so that's really, really awesome to see the culture changing around technology too. Yeah. Now Black Mirror's a Netflix original, so you have to have Netflix to watch it, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it if you okay. haven't seen it yet. I, I've been tempted to try it out, but I haven't. So <laughs> uh, I'll take More, the recommendation yeah. under advisement. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's dig into your uh, your JavaScript past. So you start programming. Um, you start to figure some of this stuff out. How, how did you get to JavaScript? Well, it wasn't until later. So that first attempt where I tried to learn programming failed really quickly, about maybe a month or two in. The second attempt was after I graduated and I was working at Google in marketing. And um, being in that environment made me get excited about technology again and I got motivated again. And that's when I started to take learning programming seriously. Um, and so... The I think learning programming and JavaScript really fits in to my career in the sense that the motivation from college still didn't change. I, I was still trying to learn programming just as a tool to start companies and build products. And so when I was at Google, I wanted, well, this was the idea and it seemed low probability at the time. It's what I was trying to do. I wanted to get experience in marketing, product management and engineering before I left. And um, so I did marketing for a year and a half or so. Then I did uh, product management for about a year and a half. And then after that, I somehow did get an engineering role. And my manager was, I can't thank him enough. He structured it almost like apprenticeships. And I, we kind of went around the normal formal process of changing roles and stuff because what I was doing was so kind of unusual for, for a normal employee. And by the time I got to that third role where I was doing engineering, the team was working on an Angular application. Mm -hmm. And so up to this point, I'd been learning on my own on nights and weekends. I hadn't done any JavaScript at all. Um, I was actually trying to avoid it because I was trying to <laughs> kind of focus on um, Python at the time. So I think back then single page applications were not as ubiquitous as they are now. And so it was really common, uh, for people to learn Ruby and Ruby on rails first, or for them to learn Python and Django first. And mm -hmm. so I did, uh, I focused on Python and Django. And so that first exposure to JavaScript was really 
in the first job. And so it was a really jarring experience because suddenly I had to learn JavaScript and then learn it well enough to be able to contribute to this Angular app. Um, and so that's how I got into JavaScript, kind of by accident, not intentionally, but just by circumstance. I think it's funny that, uh, well, I tried to tried to avoid doing this, and that's what I wound up doing. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you avoiding now so that you, you know, that's that's your next big thing, right? Yeah. Oh, I, th- I think avoidance is a theme that goes throughout my career. I think back then a lot of it was necessity because... I just didn't have that much time. And so, you know, when you're learning on nights and weekends, you might have an hour a day. Right. And so you can't do that many things. Um, but I've learned to avoid things even more aggressively now because as, as a way not to take advantage of a small amount of time, I have a lot more time now, but it's just about being really, really focused. And I think there is like a mindset shift that changed that was when you're a beginner, and this very much uh, was my case, you, I felt guilty for not going into JavaScript and not going into all these different things. Right. But I think the, the mindset difference is I didn't understand the difference between someone that knows a lot of stuff and someone that can figure out anything. And so I've moved much more towards ideal of I should try to be someone that can figure things out and I've tried to shape my students in that image too. And when you think about things that way, you almost naturally avoid things by default. Um, and so that, that avoidance thing is funny because it's something that's gotten more extreme over time. Now, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned the, you know, the fact that, oh, I've gotten better at avoiding things mainly because, you know, I don't have time to chase everything. And you also mentioned just learning on nights and weekends, which is where I think a lot of people are coming in these days. Um, I think some people are going through the boot camps and they're doing it full time. Some people are getting computer science degrees. But I think we're going to see more and more and more people basically crossing over from other areas. And they are going to be the nights and weekends kinds of people that are learning how to code there. And eventually you're going to want to, you know, come into the industry full time. So for those people that are doing this on nights and weekends, how do you how do you help them prioritize their time? Do you have some advice for them as far as do this, not that? Or here's how you just choose what you want to learn right now? Yeah, that's a really tough question because there is a lot of there are a lot of different approaches and they can each approach can work. So for example, probably the most popular approach that people hear more often than anything else is the expectation that you should learn some JavaScript, some front-end stuff, some back-end stuff, a database, a front-end framework, and you know what comprises what people call the full stack. And that's one approach, and that's kind of like the boot camp approach. And I think that can work, um, but I think it's really hard to pull off well because what actually happens is you learn a little bit of everything, but you don't really have any confidence in any of those things just because it's impossible to do that in a short amount of time. It really does take a lot of time to grasp each thing. And so it's a it's possible to do over a long period of time, but not it's really hard to do well in a short period of time. Right. And so my approach is really different. It's it's focused on what I think of as r- they're really boring things. So uh, I focus a lot on reading code, debugging, 
uh, subtle details of how to think about refactoring and just being consistent and having good style, testing. And I feel like those are the foundations of anything you end up picking up, right? If you want to end up doing React or doing Angular Review or whatever, it all comes back to those things. And so, and and it, it also reflects what I felt I was missing when I was learning. When I was working, uh, when I kind of got my first role on that engineering team at Google, it was a jarring experience because I think I was really bad at all those things. Um, I had followed the kind of full stack approach um, because that's what I had read. And But really when, when you come to a, a large code base that's focused on one thing um, and you have to fix a feature in this big app, it's really about making sense of this large piece of software and figuring out how things work and debugging things. And, and um, I felt like those aspects of my um, programming are really weak. And so that's kind of what I focus on mm -hmm. right now for myself, because I found that most helpful for me, but also for my students. Um, and what I've seen is that it's, it's not an approach that is telling people not to learn a lot of different things, but it's instead it's, it's, it's more subtle. It's, it's about learning the foundations really well so that you can pick up other things just as you need to. Right. And it's, everything is just a lot easier. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn those things, but having those foundational things and being really solid on them just makes your life generally easier by like 10 X, um, and allows you to actually do more things. So like that focus gives you a lot of freedom. That that's really interesting. I, I have my own approach to this. Um, but I, I, I teach it in my course. So, uh, and this shows about you, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to take too, too much time on it, but yeah, I tell people to just figure out where they want to be and then learn the things that are going to get there. And sometimes you have to talk to people to figure out what those are. Um, anyway, it, it, it's interesting. So you've, you kind of picked this up on your nights and weekends. You did it at Google. Um, now, did you do much code technology stuff at Google before you left or was it mostly marketing? So I'd worked uh, as a developer for about nine months before I left. That was the, the last thing I did. And that was in Angular. And so um, I have, you know, if you really think about it, I don't have that much experience at all. It's only a couple of months. And during that time, I was very much just learning because uh, I, I like didn't know JavaScript when I started. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was almost like it was almost like my school. So or, or my version of school where I learned how to program. And um, it was really about reading a lot of code. And that was something I wasn't used to. And then from there, just thinking about how to fix features. And that was such a different mindset than every tutorial that I went through before, which is focused around building things from scratch, which just takes a very different skill set versus understanding a large code base. So I probably, the thing that, the lesson that stood out the most from that experience and is very much reflected in my approach today is that emphasis on being able to read code and like rip things apart and understand every which way they work and how they might be changed. And also more subtle things like, how has this piece of software changed over time? Like, how can we look at the Git history to understand what 
you know, maybe someone on the team wrote this and they're no longer on the team. That was actually a big problem for us. Oh, so, that never happens. Anywhere, <laughs> yeah, that never. <laughs> so it's almost like you're trying to almost be a historian with the code. And those are the, the, the lessons that really, really stood out to me. And I think that's where I grew, grew the most. Of course, I learned a lot of JavaScript, but I think the, the things that I really, where I really grew as a developer is trying to understand big code bases. Right. That's interesting. And it's interesting, too, just to think about those uh, those skills and, and how all of this plays together. So uh, I, I kind of want to dig into a little bit more of, you know, what, what you've been able to do and, and what you're known for. Um, is there something that you're particularly proud of that you've done with JavaScript or is it primarily watching code? Um, you know, some, sometimes people it's like, you know what, this has kind of just been my thing. And other people it's like, well, nobody talks about this other thing that I did before I did the thing that I'm well known for. So I, I guess I want to give you the opportunity to talk about any achievements beyond watching code. And then we can dig into what watching code is for you. Yeah. To be frank, like I don't have any other <laughs> achievements. Okay. Uh, I've been really, really focused on this one mission for the last you know, four years or so. And it's, I don't do any other side projects or anything. And so I'm all, all in on, on watching code. And I think within that, if, you know, if you, I think you asked like, what, what would I be proud of? Um, I think the, the, what I'm most proud of is, is creating a product that kind of saves people a lot of the work and kind of frustration that, that I went through number one. Um, but also it's about something bigger, which is creating equal opportunity. So for people that, you know, didn't make the decision to do computing early on in their in college or earlier before that, or that people that didn't have the opportunity, they can have that opportunity now at a price that, you know, is really affordable. And so when I make decisions, I, I try to always follow this principle is choose the decision that allows you to unlock as much human potential as possible. So that comes down to pricing and it can't be too expensive, but right. it can't be too cheap either because if it's too cheap, then people ignore it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I've been, I've been really, really proud of that and just seeing the, how my students have evolved and, and become more sophisticated over time. And, you know, one of my goals, and I'm, I'm starting to see this already is ultimately I want my students, I want to produce students that are better than me. And, I can see that is happening and it's, it's going to be inevitable. And I'm probably most proud of, of that, just like where my students have, have, have gone and, and how much they've grown. Yep. Makes sense. So, yeah. So what are some of the ways that you try to accomplish that with watching code? I mean, you mentioned the pricing not being extravagant, I guess, as for lack of a better word. But I mean, what, what approach do you take with videos or content or, you know, some of the other things that you pull together? You know, how did you how do you teach people these things and, and what kind of an impact are you seeing? Yeah, so I I try to teach people in a way that simulates reality as much as possible. And the experience that kind of grounds that is the things that I went through. So I try to avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made, for example, trying to learn multiple languages at once, trying to learn too many things at the same time and just be really focused. Um, but there are also more, uh, more granular things like 
in in the very early stages when I was first starting, I wanted to I had the mindset that this was a business and you had to have good customer service. Like mm-hmm. I, so when people had a question, I just like gave them the answer. <laughs> but over time, I've learned that it's actually better not to do that, but to show them how they could find the answer. So to ask them and probe them and kind of push them so that they can get there themselves and build independence. Um, and so a lot of the the methods and things that I've incorporated into the teaching are initially f- from my own experiences, but then a lot of things that I've learned, like, you know, how to answer questions better. Um, and then also how to like teach people how to ask questions better. Right. Um, and so a lot of these really small things that you just kind of learn over time because I didn't have much experience at all teaching before this either. So I've learned a lot of things that have then incorporated back into the content and I'm still doing that today. Um, so for right now, I think there's a big transition where I've taught most of the features of JavaScript, like the technical knowledge uh-huh. and the transition is now moving from teaching people hard skills to teaching people principles around how to work with code. So for example, when you have the decision between having a one huge file or being taking a more modular approach, what are the pros and cons of that? And helping them think through decisions where there's not a clear answer. And that's kind of the next challenge that that I have. And I'm still figuring those things out. Um, but it's, it's just really fun. There's always something, something new and difficult for me to work on. Nice. And, and it's interesting, you know, it, and, and one of the questions that I usually ask is what are you working on now? And I, it sounds like we got at least part of that answer, but, um, you know, that's kind of the thing that I've been focused on. Um, and part of it's out of necessity, just from the standpoint of, I reach a lot of people across a lot of different communities and I, I want to make things available to all of my audiences and not just JavaScript audiences or Angular audiences. But yeah, it's, you know, what are these skills that are going to make your job easier, whether you're doing JavaScript or .NET or Java or, you know, some esoteric language that nobody's heard of yet or whatever. And those are sometimes really tricky to teach. And, uh, you know, what, what are you learning as you refine this process down to, okay, here's how we approach this topic or that topic, or here's how we approach something that's general and more conceptual than, uh, practical. And what I mean is, is like, um, you know, here's how you think about organizing the code instead of actual, here's how JavaScript does the thing. And here's an example. Right. That's a really good question. It's something I'm still working on discovering right now. But I think there's one situation where that kind of illustrates this, where I think the default thinking on this problem is a little bit off. And so I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I know it's something different than what we see currently. So what I'm talking about right now is I get this question a lot from students uh, about best practices. Mm -hmm. And Best practices is such a loaded term <laughs> yeah, because, <it> <laughs> because, because it's not really the best. It's like the best for a given situation uh-huh. if you have this criteria, right? Yep. But that gets lost when you have a blog post that has best practices. And then you start to get questions like, uh, for example, when I teach 
the beginner course, Practical JavaScript, I do a lot of things that I guess wouldn't be best practices right. uh, very broadly. So for example, I'll get a comment, this doesn't scale to a large application, but it's like, well, it's not, <laughs> it's not a large application, right? So, so I think best practices are very naive, simplified way of trying to get at what we're talking about. Um, but the, the the thing that's underneath is showing and not being afraid of confronting that complexity that comes into evaluating and almost scoring this way of doing something, right? So like in this situation, it has this solution has these pros and cons. And then in another situation, it has a different set of pros and cons. Right. And depending on your criteria, your best practice might be different. Um, and depending on your priorities, your best practice might be different. And so teaching that is, it is difficult. And I think that the my, my guess is, and, and the, the way I think I'm going to approach it, is to just confront that complexity and show you how people actually think about it and um, think through these things. Because I think when someone ends up make like if you think of someone that makes good decisions generally they are going through that process right they're not just checking off best practices because uh, i don't think that leads to to good results um, but they're going through this very nuanced systematic thinking that can be taught but uh, it is tricky to teach because it's 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 a complicated process yeah well the thing that i see is uh so I've been working on making processes for a lot of the systems that we use at devchat.tv to make podcasts, right? And the way I do things probably doesn't make a ton of sense for how other people do things. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to, with best practices, generalize something that isn't always generalizable. <laughs> yeah, and so, exactly. And, and I, hear, I think that's what you're trying to say is that, you know, what, what's going to work for me may not work for you because my situation's different. And so I think sometimes the best practice is to actually talk about why we're making the decisions we're making and then document that well so that when somebody has to make the decision, they make the right one for our situation. And when somebody else has to make a decision, you know, they, they make the right call for their situation. Exactly. It's almost like teaching through case studies rather than teaching through, you know, a 10 top 10 list of best practices. And I think, I think what you're doing is, is, is the way to go. And, and you see this not just in programming, but in all fields that there's an appeal to, um, having a way of doing things that's just really attractive. <laughs> so, so in marketing, for example, you know, people will, you have a, this huge list of tactics that yeah. they say everyone should do. And it's like, well, it, it actually depends, right? So sometimes um, something that worked really well for one company is not going to work for you. And mm -hmm. and um, I think maybe it's also really helpful just to think about, like, what are the motivations of the people that are writing the article? Because sometimes it's not, <laughs> it, it, they're actually not trying to teach, but they're trying to get page views or something. Um, and to, to, to even think about it more deeply than that, like, are they like, what are they actually trying to say? Or is this one of those formulaic top 10 lists mm -hmm. that we've seen many, many times? Um, and so, so I think being just general, uh, generally I'd say the next challenge, once you have the technical fundamentals down 
is a way of thinking and a thoughtfulness that allows you to make nuanced decisions. And I think that will be like the next challenge for me and the next challenge for probably a lot of your listeners too that are that know JavaScript well, but are thinking about how to hone their taste and their judgment around solving different problems. Yeah. The the other thing I see here too, though, is that a lot of times it's, well, you know, what's what's the best way to do this? <laughs> and then they, they're not actually answering the question, which is, um, you know, what outcome are we after? Exactly. And yeah, so, you have to set the criteria first. Yeah. So what are, what are we actually measuring here? doesn't often get addressed. And so what's the best way to do this? Well, in what way to make the code more maintainable, to make it more readable, to make it more testable, to make it so that it makes us more money? You know, I mean, there are a lot of different betters, you know, so which better do we want? Right. Or it could just be, we don't want to spend time on it. Yeah. And that's why we're going to leave it the way it is. That's more often than not the answer. And it ha it comes up so often. And that's often the the right approach mm -hmm. for most companies just because they're more important priorities than making the code perfect. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, thinking about just seeing that big picture is really important so that if you're the engineering manager, you can talk to the CEO and not like pull your hair out because you understand that, you know, it's bigger than having the perfect code. Yep. All right. So, um, so yeah, so is there anything else you're working on with regards to watching code or any other projects you have going on? No, that's um, like right, right now I'm just focused on adding more content and refining the existing content. Um, and so it's, again, like all of it's just been really focused on continuing to to work and push along the, that mission forward a little bit more every day. Awesome. Well, the last section of this show is picks, and we, we've had you on the show before, um, so I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the idea, but what do you have some things you want to shout out about? For you, the listeners of My JavaScript Story, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Sure, yeah. So I think um, one, one podcast I really like since we're on a podcast is how I built this. And I really like it just because it comes back to why I got into programming and, and how it's a tool for solving problems. And um, so I... I that's a really good way to get the stories behind different products that, that uh, we all use. So how I built this. Um, and then the second podcast I really like, I just have podcast picks today, is mm -hmm. Stay Tuned with Preet. That's P-R-E-E-T. And that's been really important, I think, for me because I've been trying to understand better the political climate in the United States and trying to make sense of the things that are going on. Uh, Good Preet, luck. 
Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's it's tough, but there are little things you can do. Maybe this is the first step. Preet is a, a former U.S. attorney that was fired by Donald Trump, and he has a um, interesting perspective on things that I found really uh, really valuable. Nice. Um, I I'm gonna jump in here and uh, do a few picks myself. Um, dang, I do I do so many of these. I've done one, two, three. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised you don't run out of things. So I'm running out of picks. Um, but yeah, um, I just barely put in some orders. So one of the things that I'm doing different this year is uh, I'm going out to conferences and I'm doing video interviews with some of the speakers at the conferences. So I've been working with NG Atlanta. So I'm going to be out there. I'm going to Developer Week in Oakland, which incidentally they they uh, the the timelines coincide such that I'm flying from Atlanta to Oakland <laughs> instead of back to Salt Lake City. Um, and anyway, so I put in some orders for some some equipment on Amazon, and I'm just going to go through that list real quick um, because at CES it became readily apparent. I was at CES last week um, that the video setup that I had was a little bit insufficient. I was just using, using my phone and that works for most of this stuff. But like my phone battery started to run out. I ran out of space on my phone at one point and I just need to be able to swap out, um, uh, SD cards. And I, you know, I want a video camera that can capture really high quality stuff. And I want an extra battery pack that I can slip on and off. And, uh, you know, you can put a battery pack on a phone, but it just starts charging it back up. It doesn't actually solve the problem of it running down if you're using it heavily. So um, I ordered some equipment, like I said. And um, anyway, uh, I'm just going to run through the list, like I said. So the first thing that I ordered was a camera. And one of the cameras I was looking at was like a, a Canon camcorder. But the issue was was that it was like $100 more expensive than kind of the knockoff brand. And the knockoff brand seems to do just fine. Um, so I found a 4K camcorder. It's It cost me $169. And uh, it's a 48 megapixel uh, camera. So it does four, uh, 4K quality recordings. And, um, you know, so it has a touchscreen on it. And it comes with two batteries and the other one didn't. So we'll see how this all works. But... Um, it looks pretty good. So I got that. I'll put links to all this in the show notes. Um, and then I actually got a stabilizing, uh, handle grip. Um, so what it is, is if you kind of take a U and you turn it on its side, um, the camcorder sits on the bottom arm of the U and then the top arm has a spot for me to put, uh, attachments like, um, a microphone or a light or something like that. And that was something that I needed because I have a Zoom H6 that I'm planning on running microphones to. And so I had to get a couple of XLR cables for that. I got 25 foot XLR cables because I already have microphones that I take with me when I travel that hook up to that. And then I had to get a mount for the, the Zoom. And that's kind of the rig that I'm planning on running with. I already have a camcorder or a, sorry, a tripod and a monopod, which is just the tripod, except it has one leg. Um, so I was all set up for that stuff. So all in all, just to get me to, uh, you know, kind of recording proficiency, it cost me about $200. So um, that, that's kind of what I'm looking at these days. Like I said, I'll put all of the, the links to all this stuff in the, um, in the show notes. One other thing just to, to mention is that I have the Zoom H6. That's a $300 
um, recording rig. And it's, it's a digital recorder. It's one unit, but it has four XLR or uh, quarter inch plugs, four different types of microphones. And so it's kind of a recording studio all in one. And so anyway, it's, um, it's, it's pretty darn awesome. And I figure I can just hook that up and then, um, you know, we can just hook up a couple of mics through the Zoom. The Zoom has a, a headphone output that I can run into the audio uh, input on the camcorder. And uh, we'll just run it that way. And then uh, the sound should be pretty good, but I have a backup recording of just the um, interview. So if the video dies for whatever reason, um, I can just swap it. I can just pull the audio and make, make it an audio-only dealio. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm looking at these days. And uh, yeah, so now I'm picking stuff I don't even have yet. <laughs> Should show up on my porch today. But anyway, uh, but if you could do repeat picks, are there any that you would like that you really like that you'd want to highlight again? You know that that's kind of interesting. So there are a few things that I use every day. Um, I hate spending so much time on picks, but I'm going to do it anyway because you asked. Uh, one of them is what I'm using to record the audio right now, and that is the um, Roland. R-09 recorder. That's about a $100 uh, digital audio recorder. It doesn't have all the plugs and equalizers and stuff that the Zoom has, um, but it's kind of a handy little thing if you just want to record, you know, on the fly. Um, and it takes an SD card, so it, it's pretty easy to deal with. Um, I'd have to think. Um, one other thing that I really like is... And it's mostly because I hate that uh, the MacBook Pros, they switched it over to the USB-C. And my MacBook Pro, my, my previous one died, so I had to get a new one. And so it's now USB-C. So I had to get a, a, a dongle docking station kind of thing that slides into the two USB-C ports on the side of my MacBook Pro. But then it gives me all of the ports that I had on the old MacBook Pro. And those aren't... I can't remember how much I spent on that. I think it was like... 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something. But, um, you know, it has the SD card reader. It has two USBs and two USB-Cs. Um, and the cool thing about USB-C, the thing that I like about it is that you can charge on any port and things like that. So I just, I can plug the power directly into that docking station. And it'll still charge up my Mac. So, you know, all of that's kind of nice. Um, I use ScreenFlow on a regular basis. Um and, uh, yeah, I've been hiring people to help with the processes, and I've been documenting a lot of the processes in a wiki online, and I've been using PBWiki. Uh, so if you go to pbworks.com, um, you can get a, a number of wikis and a number of users on those wikis for free. And the, re the reason I like that one over some of the other ones is most of them are Markdown-based, and I just didn't want to force the people I'm hiring to learn Markdown. It probably wouldn't hurt them, but... Um, anyway, so you can actually, it just has a WYSIWYG editor when you edit the pages. And so that's been pretty nice. Um, I would have done a lot of that on Google Docs, but I kind of like the flexibility of having it all in one place and having a front page where it's, okay, here are all the processes for doing podcasts and here are all the templates for sending emails and all that stuff. And so people can just quickly browse that page and find what they need. And you, you don't really get that sort of table of contents in Google Docs. I guess you could create a doc that is that, but then you have to go in and out of folders and crap, and I didn't want to deal with that. So 
Anyway, so yeah, a few other picks there, I guess. You get lots of picks, folks. Lucky you. Um, one other thing I guess I'll pick while I'm at it is the whiteboard behind me. Um, is not actually a whiteboard. It's a shower board from Home Depot. And uh, it's not quite as, you know, it takes a little bit more to get the uh, dry erase off of it sometimes, especially if it's been up there for a while. But in general, I can write on it and erase on it just fine. Um, and if you do have to get something off, you just you just spray the dry erase solvent on in there and it just gets it right off. So anyway, so if you're looking for a cheap whiteboard, I think I spent 10 bucks <laughs> for the for that uh, whiteboard that size is usually uh, more than $100. So saving a little bit of dollars there. But yeah, so uh, lots of picks. And uh, there you go. So you asked and you got. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I guess the last thing that I'm going to ask before we wrap up is if um, if people want to see what you're working on these days or, you know, maybe you blog or you're on Medium or something like that, where, where do they go? And also Twitter and GitHub. Sure. Yeah. So all the latest work is at watchingcode.com. And uh, I'm active on Twitter too. It's Gordon underscore Zoo and Zoo is Z-H-U. So you can tweet at me there. All right. Sounds good. And uh, I'm just going to say that I really like the Practical JavaScript uh, series. So definitely check that out. And if that's any indication of the quality that you put on your premium membership, then it's going to be a tremendous deal, folks. So go check that out, watchingcode.com. And we'll wrap this up, and we'll tell someone else's story next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.